Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Let me start with this, Premier. Uh, would you speak to the fact uh, that COVID infection numbers are down again in Alberta? Well, Global News reporting 305 cases and just 15 deaths in the province yesterday. And uh, would you address also the graduated reopening of the province? Talk to us about that. Sure. You know, Roy, in the first nine months of the pandemic, we did, uh, I think, very well in Alberta. With lighter restrictions than the other provinces, we also had lower hospitalizations, infections, and fatalities uh, than the large provinces, all the U.S. states, and almost all of Europe. But unfortunately, that changed in the fall. Uh, following Thanksgiving and Halloween, we saw a huge fall spike. You know, we did across the Northern Hemisphere, but it was it was really uh, serious we saw hospitalizations from COVID go from 100 to nearly 1,000 in the, in the space of uh, just over a month. And so we had to impose uh, some uh, painful restrictions. They, they're still much less uh, restrictive than Ontario and Quebec, for example. As a result of that, Albertans responded with great care for their uh, their neighbours and, and the vulnerable, and we've seen the numbers come down significantly. Um, and uh, we just need to keep going in the same direction. We are gradually re- relaxing those restrictions step-by-step, based on the numbers in a hospital, because that's the key thing, uh, Roy. A lot of people focus on cases and tests. What really drives our concern is making sure that we don't overwhelm the health system and have to cancel everyone else's surgeries and health care. So we're, we're, we're now in a pretty good spot, but I must confess we are concerned uh, about the new variants, and uh, we have to keep a very close eye on that. Premier, you mentioned rapid testing, and that's uh, an issue across this country. I know your chief medical officer of health, Dr. Hinshaw, has tweeted on this issue. Can you just bring us up to date on what you're doing as far as rapid testing is concerned? Yes. So, uh, first of all, Roy, you may, I don't know if you remember, but uh, last April, um, when there were, there were federal holdups in approving rapid testing, I was pretty uh, outspoken about that and told our folks here uh, to prepare to uh, to um, roll out any rapid testing that had been approved by the U.S., Europe, Europe, or Australia, uh, because the Fed seemed so slow to the uh, to, to the to, to the party, as it were, on on rapid testing approval. Um, but finally, they did approve some rapid tests, but with the caveat they could only be used on people who were symptomatic of COVID nineteen, and that's um, a pretty limited use, uh, to be honest with you. So. All provinces, as a result, ended up with a big stockpile of unused rapid test kits. The feds finally came to us a couple of weeks ago and said, you know, uh, go ahead and use them for asymptomatic individuals. So we're now rolling them out, and we'll be doing uh, uh, regular screening of workers at um, nursing homes, long-term care facilities, and uh, critical workplaces. And, and so um, we're, going to, we're going to start using that rapid testing as an important uh, additional tool to protect people from COVID. Okay. Now, I have to ask you about this, and I want to ask you about this. Canada keeps sliding backwards. 
as far as uh, wherever we are numerically in the world, as far as vaccines delivered to citizens is concerned, we're three out of 100, says the BBC, U.S. at 14, U.K. seven times higher than Canada at 21. I spoke last weekend uh, with Premier Mo. I've never heard him sound so frustrated after the call U.S. Premiers had with the Prime Minister. We heard uh, Premier Pallister on Thursday say that Manitoba has bought two million um, doses of vaccine from Providence Therapeutics, which is based in Calgary. I understand you've also spoken with the CEO of Providence Therapeutics. Are premiers, are you as a group frustrated with Mr. Trudeau concerning vaccine numbers and the fact the PM refuses to disclose so far anyway? He said now he... He'll provide information, but so far he's refused to disclose to premiers any details about the federal government contracts with pharmaceutical companies concerning vaccine acquiring. Is he vacillating? Um, are, you, are you as a group frustrated with him? Oh, I would say extremely frustrated with the lack of uh, reliable supply. Uh, Roy, the, the federal government, through something called the I think the National Operations Center for Vaccine Distribution, um, has supposed to give provinces a sense of, of what shipments are coming when. Uh, and basically, since uh, the second week of January, those shipments have either been completely cancelled, indefinitely postponed, delayed. I, I raised this with the Prime Minister a couple of weeks ago, about 10 days ago. I said the timelines keep slipping. He said that's not true. Uh, but it, it, it's absolutely the case. I mean, Roy, we basically ran out of supply here for all intents and purposes, uh, virtually ran out of supply uh, nearly a month ago. And, I mean, we've had, we've had uh, small numbers of vaccines coming in, and we've had to hold back for se- to administer second doses. It's very frustrating. We can't really plan. Uh, and uh, because of this, and, and here's the, uh, we, I asked him point blank in our last meeting uh, to release the contracts. They've done that in Australia, in Europe, in the United States, in Israel. Uh, I don't, uh, and uh, federal government has refused to do so. Um, it, it, I can only infer that we did not sign strong enough contracts, and we were late to the game um, to sign contracts at all. And now, of course, we're the victims of vaccine nationalism from uh, coming from Europe and the U.S., where, understandably, I suppose, politicians in those countries want their own people vaccinated before they export supply. And uh, I, I have not seen an adequate response to that from the federal government. So uh, we, uh, several provinces, are working together to pursue our own uh, Plan B in terms of domestic uh, production. Uh, that's a really complex issue, but there are a number of companies in Canada that uh, have uh, vaccine programs. You're right, Providence in Alberta is one of them. Entos in, in Edmonton, uh, Alberta is another. Uh, and uh, we are doing our due diligence to see if, if we can make uh, our own orders to, here domestically um, as a backup plan. And I'll, put, I'll point out, Roy, that we expect that some of these new variants of COVID-19 will require changes to the vaccine. So we might go through a whole new round of vaccine nationalism as, as Europe and America grab the, the, the uh, modified vaccines. And that's why I think in the midterm, it makes a lot of sense to invest in domestic production here. Premier Kenny, I was about to ask you whether, and, and you give me a bit of an answer before I ask this question, but let's expand it. Uh, I was going to ask you whether premiers are prepared to go it alone. I'll amend that, as I said before the break. Do you find it necessary to go alone as a group and establish your own backup plan just in case Mr. Trudeau is not going to deliver what he's promising as far as vaccines and September is concerned? Yeah, I think it's prudent to have a plan B. And to answer your other question, I can't speak for all the premiers, but but several of them are interested for sure 
in uh, pursuing uh, our own line on domestic production uh, because we've just been uh, disappointed repeatedly by the lack of reliability of, of the federal source. And, uh, and, so, and, and, and more than that, I think we all see the long-term advantage of having our own domestic vaccine production capacity. Uh, you know, after the Second World War, countries around the world realized they needed uh, that domestic food security was critically important. Uh, and and uh, we know that after the OPEC crisis in the 70s, energy security was important. Well, I think that we can now see that vaccine security is important, given the tendency uh, towards vaccine nationalism around the world. So even if we were to invest in some domestic production and it were to become, like Brian Pallister was saying in that clip, it were to become uh, unnecessary in this current crisis, it could still be useful for future variants and for future potential pandemics. So you don't have confidence in Mr. Trudeau? Uh, well, we, uh, there's, <laughs> look, we're hoping for the best, but preparing for the worst. Is that what the Interprovincial Task Force is about? I mean, how many of you as premiers are talking about having to come up with your own backup plan? Well, several of us, and I'll say I'll have more to say formally about that next week. Uh, but uh, we, we uh, pitched the idea of putting together a task force because, uh, you know, the the cost of uh, establishing uh, vaccine production is 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 huge, uh, and the, the the scale of orders they would need would be very substantial. No one province um, could do that alone. I mean, I think this this Manitoba agreement is is conditional on other orders coming in. So we're looking at whether we can share, you know, get some economies of scale, share our expertise, and cooperate on that. Premier Kenny, uh, would you tell us, please, what your feeling is, what your thinking is, on the federal government's initiative to test travelers arriving in Canada and requiring a PVR test and a stay of up to three days in in a hotel waiting for the test results? What are your thoughts? Hmm. Well, I... Back in the spring of last year, a year ago, Roy, I was calling for us to shut down travel from COVID hotspots. And that's what, you know, just think about Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, uh, Hong Kong. Uh, because they live in that neighborhood, they've had been more affected by pandemics, and they, they know not to trust the Chinese Communist Party. They immediately shut down travel from Wuhan and then other COVID hotspots uh, like Tehran and Milan. And as, uh, partly as a result of that, and this, I would include Australia and New Zealand in this, um, they, um, those, those Asian countries in particular have had almost no restrictions and almost no COVID. And, and that's because they, they, they and, and they've also had very tough uh, quarantine requirements for new travelers. So I, I think there is something in that. I, 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 I don't believe the federal government's handled this very well because they dropped it on people without much advance notice. Uh, the cost issue, um, I don't know if they're trying to run a profit on this, charging people $2,000. And, and in some cases, they weren't informing people about where they were, what hotels they were going to be put in. So it, it looks to me like it hasn't, uh, there's been a lot of mistakes in the way they've rolled it out. But I, I, with the new variants circulating the globe, listen, Roy, I, I don't want to have to um, slam on more restrictions on Alberta's economy, damaging people's livelihoods, uh, because travelers bring these new variants. So we have to be careful, uh, minimize uh, the, the impairment of people's rights. But, you know, I'll, I'll give you one example, Roy. We had somebody fly in from Florida uh, last month with the U.K. variant. They were told to quarantine, um, but the guy ended up socializing with his girlfriend. And now we have a whole uh, chain of transmission from that one guy refusing to quarantine. 
So I do think we need strong quarantine measures, uh, but they have to be properly communicated and reasonable. So what I hear, Premier Kenny, uh, the underflow or undertow, if you will, in this conversation that we're having is that you as a group of premiers, and you said you were going to be talking about this next week, that you as a group of premiers have lost confidence in the federal government's ability to deal with this pandemic in a responsible manner as far as, at least as far as vaccines are concerned. Am I wrong? I can't speak for all the premiers. I can say that, that many of the provincial governments are profoundly frustrated with the uh, unreliability of the federal uh, uh, so- uh, vaccine sourcing. So that's why we're looking at our own plan B. Okay, let me change topics here for a moment. What are your thoughts on the U.S. court decisions, which have cleared the way for construction of Enbridge Line 3 in the U.S., and it's already operational in Canada, plus TMX is scheduled to be completed by the end of next year, significantly increasing capacity. This while the governor of Michigan still has an order to shut down Line 5 under the Mackinac Straits. What do you make of, uh, of what's going on as far as that's concerned? Pipelines. Yeah, uh, you and I have spoken about this before, and thank you, Roy, for bringing this to the attention of your national listenership. This is a national issue. Uh, about half of the fuel burned in southern Ontario, and much of the energy consumed in Quebec comes out of this Line 5 that's operated safely for six decades. Uh, it also fuels much of the upper Midwest economy, 640,000 barrels a day. Um, and Enbridge, a great Canadian company, the uh, largest pipeline company in North America, is proposing to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to build a subterranean uh, pipeline to replace the old one under the Straits of Mackinac to remove any concern about the uh, the marine safety there, the, the safety of the lake. Um, but the governor is being uh, driven by her, uh, by, I guess, the green left lobby, um, to just shut it down. And uh, this would be catastrophic for the central Canadian economy, for her own economy. They wouldn't be able to fly out of Detroit airport if this happened. They wouldn't be able to heat their homes in the upper Michigan peninsula. Um, and and so we've been raising the alarm. I actually went down there to Michigan about 15 months ago. The governor would not meet with me. I asked for a phone call with her, and she agreed to the phone call only on the condition that I did not raise line five. I mean, it's ridiculous. How, a ridiculous way to treat friends. We're the, we are by far Michigan's largest trading partner as a country, and Alberta by far their largest energy source. You know what? I think it's time that we Canadians started to stand up and demand to be treated with respect. Unfortunately, the federal government did not do that with the uh, vetoing of Keystone XL. And, and I think that just invites further aggression on line five, line three, et cetera. There is a well-funded campaign, largely from uh, U.S. foundations, with a highly political agenda to landlock Canadian energy. It hurts our economy. It hurts our energy security. And the consequences of some of this could be devastating in terms of the ability to heat homes and, 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 and run our modern industrial economy. Yeah, it's only minus 30 in... Alberta today. So, <laughs> yeah. By the way, I just want to say <laughs> to all of the people who uh, attack Canada's energy industry, who attack the, Can- Albert, the Canadian oil sands, um, who say that we can run this big, cold, vast northern modern industrial economy on windmills and uh, and good wishes, you should please thank our energy workers, thank the rig hands, and and all of those who do the tough work. To heat your home today when it's minus 30 in many parts of the country. Yeah, Premier, we have less than a minute. Liberal MPs in an all-day filibuster on Friday attempted to derail a Conservative Party of Canada attempt for information on contracts the Trudeau government signed with pharmaceutical companies for COVID va- vaccines. Back to that. What do you think in a few seconds? What's your sense of the filibuster? Why are they doing that? <laughs> or do I have the answer already? I, I can only assume there's something to hide. I, I, I mean, 
if in fact they cannot legally do so, then, then at least show us the NDA, the, the non-disclosure agreement part of the contract. They won't even do that. A filibuster is because they, they don't want transparency. Australia, Europe, um, United States, Israel have all released uh, their principal vaccine contracts. Presumably they have the same confidentiality provisions. They've done it in the public interest. Why have we not done so here? I'll continue to ask for that. Democracy Watch is calling on the RCMP and on prosecutors federally to issue an update on the investigation into obstruction of justice in the SNC-Lavalin prosecution by Trudeau cabinet officials. Justin Trudeau was convicted of his second violation of the Parliamentary Conflict of Interest Act by Ethics Commissioner Mario Dion over his and the PMO's interference with Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould. Duff Conacher is the co-founder of Democracy Watch. And by the way, uh, they don't survive uh, because somebody just provides funds. Democracy Watch does a lot of really good work and uh, watchdogs for our society. So if you can uh, provide some support financially, you can find it at democracywatch.ca. Um, Duff Conacher joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. That's right. Duff, it's democracywatch.ca, right? That's right. Uh, let me just read here something that you wrote a letter. So you wrote a letter to the RCMP and prosecutors, and you wrote in part, given the evidence and that two years have passed since the situation was made public and 18 months since the Ethics Commissioner's ruling revealed many of the facts concerning Prime Minister Trudeau and other government officials pressuring the Attorney General, the public has a right to an update on the RCMP's investigation. What do we need to know, Duff? Well, uh, they have not said anything since August of 2019 when the Ethics Commissioner's report came out. And that report found Prime Minister Trudeau guilty of violating the Conflict of Interest Act, as you mentioned, led off nine others, including former Finance Minister Bill Morneau and his staff and Prime Minister Office staff and some other government officials, clerk of the Privy Council, who also did the same thing that, that Trudeau did. Uh, pressured the Attorney General to stop the prosecution of SNC-Lavalin. He let them all off, and Democracy Watch is challenging that decision in court. Uh, um, and then the RCMP said, well, we're examining the, the uh, allegation of obstruction of justice closely. And then some sources from the RCMP anonymously reported to the Globe in September of 2019 that they were suspending the investigation during the election period, the federal election that happened in the fall of 2019. And that's it. Since then, radio silence. No updates, um, no disclosures. And it's just unacceptable and unjustifiable because pretty much all of the evidence was out there as of August 2019. Um, there is some evidence still being hidden, but enough to make a decision about a prosecution for obstruction of justice. That There was ample evidence at that time. And here we are now in February 2021 with no idea what's going on. So if I recall correctly, Jody Wilson-Raybould did give an interview uh, in 2019, and yes. she indicated, and I can stand to be corrected here, that the RCMP did speak with her. That's right. That was in September of 2019. And so clearly, the time, they, we know they're interested, or were. Yes, and the clerk of the Privy Council, uh, who was Ian Sugar who's still the clerk of the Privy Council. It was previously Michael Wernick, who was one of the ones who pressured former Attorney General 
Jody Wilson-Raybould. But uh, Ian Shorgert made the decision, he says alone, uh, not to disclose any cabinet documents and still not to allow the RCMP to talk to people in the government, uh, government officials uh, who had been witnesses or to conversations had seen documents. And they had done the same thing with the Ethics Commissioner, not allowed him to see some of the uh, cabinet communications claiming they were uh, properly confidential under cabinet confidence and also uh, not allowing them to speak to everyone who had witnessed um, or seen emails or been copied on emails or witnessed conversations involved in the situation. And lots of people, myself included, have, have said, well, that's not a proper use of the exemption of cabinet confidence. Um, there's no reason for that information to be hidden and those people to be sheltered from being interviewed by the ethics commissioner or the RCMP. Uh, it's, it's amounts to further obstruction of justice, really, because you're obstructing the investigation into finding out what fully happened. But again, there was enough evidence in the ethics commissioner's report and enough evidence disclosed right back to February of 2019 when Jody Wilson-Raybould testified and disclosed some documents and, and a tape of a conversation she had with the former clerk of the Privy Council. There was enough evidence then. There were, you had lawyers who were, who were expert in the area of criminal law commenting at the time saying, looks like there's enough there for an obstruction of justice charge. And the ethics commissioner found, because of course with any violation of the criminal code, you need to prove intent. Uh, that's part of uh, any uh, criminal prosecution. And the ethics commissioner concluded in his ruling that Mr. Trudeau knowingly sought to influence Ms. Wilson-Raybould both directly and through the actions of his agents. So there you have the intent proven as well. So what are we doing here now, 18 months after that ethics commissioner report came out, with no indication or word from the RCMP or the prosecutors they're working for? Well, it starts to... uh just raise questions about whether there's any kind of interference going on, doesn't it? I mean, it's unavoidable that you start to ask yourself that question based on the very fact of what was going on with the SNC-Lavla investigation. Yes, interference or, uh, first of all, it's very unlikely it's federal prosecutors working with the RCMP. The RCMP has their own in-house lawyers who counsel them on uh, investigations. But it would be improper for the federal prosecutors to then be making the decisions on prosecuting because they were the ones involved in the situation. They were the ones who were prosecuting, going ahead with the prosecution of SNC-Lavalin. This is the Federal Prosecution Service. And that was the prosecution that uh, Trudeau and the others were pressuring the Attorney General to stop. So it would be inappropriate for them to then be making decisions about whether to prosecute Trudeau and the others. So it's likely... Crown prosecutors, either from Quebec or Ontario at the provincial level. Um, and so you wouldn't really see in interference, I wouldn't think, well, it might be interference from the Ford government or the Quebec government, but they would favor probably a prosecution of Trudeau and the others. Mm -hmm. um, certainly Ford, being a conservative, wouldn't be quite happy to see a liberal prime minister prosecuted. I think it's more likely, though, that it's just the same thing that so often happens in Canada when powerful politicians and government officials are alleged to have violated the law. 
which is that the investigators delay and delay and delay with the hope that people forget and that they can eventually just bury it and let everyone off and maybe someone will resign or retire or lose another election will pass and they'll lose the election. And that is very much, I can cite lots of past situations where that's just the Canadian way. If you walk away from your job in government or as a politician, you just don't get prosecuted. Or the prosecutors, they've done this several times in B.C. with lots of situations over the past five, seven years, where they had a special prosecutor who didn't report for three years and then quietly tried to release, saying, no, I'm letting everyone off, even though there was clear evidence of wrongdoing. I think that's more what's happening, and we're going to keep the pressure on to make sure that doesn't happen. Oh, good for you, and there is uh, you're pursuing it in federal court. So, Duff, we don't know anything more than we knew in fall of 2019 as far as the invest any investigation is concerned right that's right nothing at and, all and obstruction of justice as you point out in the news release from democracy watch is a serious criminal offense and obstruction of justice is even more serious when committed behind closed doors by government politicians and officials as it is then also an act of government corruption so what you said just before the break that the modus operandus in canada frequently is let's just ignore this as long as we possibly can if we can ignore it long enough then people will forget about it and we can get on to other issues in 2019 this story snc lavlin jody wilson raybould's testimony her willingness to share with us her truth her dismissal as attorney general and her eventual expulsion from the liberal party of canada was the lead story day after day after day, Trudeau was re reacting to it and responding to it uh, publicly. And now maybe they've achieved their, their objective because there's not much said anymore. Exactly. And um, most people are probably thinking, oh, I've heard of obstruction of justice, but I thought it was when you, you know, try and bribe a witness or, or a judge or, uh, in some way tamper with evidence or just refuse to answer questions um, and uh, the this situation is obviously much different than that it's probably happened in the past uh, but we've just never had the public disclosure that we had from the from uh, the former attorney general and uh, of emails and and phone calls and things like that conversations so um, as a result, I think the default position of the prosecutors should be, well, let's test this in court because, you know, they, they also have a public interest test for proceeding with any prosecution. And part of the public interest test is, uh, is there clear evidence and uh, is it a serious situation and serious violation and uh, is the person clearly responsible? And all those things apply. Um, we then have these vague words in the criminal code that define obstruction of justice, and they haven't. The prosecutors can't point to a past case and say, "Oh, we know for sure how the courts will rule on this," because there haven't been past cases of this kind of situation. So their default position should be let the courts decide. Yeah, you're a lawyer yourself. Uh, what are you expecting to come out of this? And when might we? logically expect anything to come from it and will it uh, to a greater or lesser degree require jody wilson raybould to become public about this again 
Well, she doesn't want to um, violate her cabinet oath and of, of confidence, and the government is saying, well, these things are cabinet confidences. So she said, I've said as much as I can. I don't think she will say more. Um, there has been a political cost, obviously, uh, and there was uh, a drop in the polls for the Liberals as a result of this situation, and they only won a minority government in the 2019 election, and lots of people pointed to these kind of situations as the reason they switched their vote. Uh, but, you know, that's not enough to have a rule of law. And if you don't have a rule of law, the Supreme Court and courts around the world have said you don't have a, a democracy, you don't have a democratic government. If you violate the law, you're supposed to be held accountable with the prosecution. And, and then, yeah. you know, people take into account when sentencing someone uh, the mitigating factors that there might be present. But you're supposed to be prosecuted. I'm hoping that we have a rule of law in Canada and that this is tested in the courts and let the courts decide whether the lines were crossed here. Because, again, we don't have past situations or rulings to point to that make it clear what the courts would do in, in such a situation. Yeah, you also write in this uh, release that I have from democracywatch.ca, prosecutors in Canada have, in recent years, usually provided public explanations of investigation and prosecution decisions in such cases. And you point to British Columbia, again, special prosecutors, in several re recent cases, and the Commissioner of Canada elections concerning the robocall situation. So it's not unheard of, it's more of the norm than not the norm for prosecutors to actually provide explanations. It is. And uh, in the, in, in, I had mentioned earlier, it's very unlikely that the federal prosecutors are on this case because they wouldn't have a distance from the case. They'd have a conflict right. of interest. Right. Uh, and what happens in a lot of provinces is they have a special prosecutor system uh, where uh, it is the attorney general who chooses this person, but it's someone who's usually from outside the province, has independence from the government isn't under the direction of the Minister of Justice or the Attorney General. And BC does this a lot. And, uh, for example, they've had three cases in the last seven years. And then the special prosecutor comes out with an explanation. Uh, now, as I've said, in each time, uh, it's been a guy named David Butcher with these last three cases. And two of them, he waited for three years. And then he came out and said, I'm letting everyone off and didn't really explain fully why. So I don't think it's quite enough to have that special prosecutor system. That system should be changed so that the person's really fully independent, isn't chosen by the attorney general. But um, at least they have that independent person, and at least they have a, set out a, a public explanation. Uh, and they don't just try and bury it without any word to anybody as to what's happened. It's, you know, it's just unacceptable. The public right. has a right to know, and the public has a right to an explanation. Exactly. Can't just let this go with, and with radio silence forever. Duff, thank you very much for the time, and thanks again for what you do, because this story was the dominant news story, and it hasn't gone away. The factors haven't disappeared. The need for more information and the truth still exists, so let's pursue it. Thank you, Duff. Thank you. I'll keep you updated as we hear back, hopefully, from Please do. the prosecutors. I was online, and I was uh, looking at, uh, I was on Twitter, actually, looking at Alan Cross's Twitter feed, broadcaster, writer, public speaker, consultant. This podcast is the ongoing history of new music. And you can also find a journal of musicalthings.com. And Alan and I used to work down the hall from each other at uh, 900 CHML in Hamilton, and what was then Y95. And he was program director, and I was just a troublemaker. 
and uh, we could spend time talking about music. And, and Alan, thank you for coming on the show. I want to talk about a poll that you that you uh, that you put on your Twitter feed. I am so nostalgic for those moments where you can actually sit with a ton of people just enjoying music again. I want to do it, but Canadians, tell us about this. Canadians are concerned, right? Canadians are very concerned about it. Uh, we, it's been a year since we've been able to go to a show, at least uh, legally and without any sort of fear. And uh, there has been a survey by Music Canada, which is the organization that represents the interests of the recorded music industry in this country. And uh, what they're trying to do is put together some information that they can present to the governments so they can maybe get some financial help to rebuild the industry once COVID starts to go away. And in this survey, they've uh, nailed that. Uh, I can't remember what the number is. It's, it's 85% or something of Canadians are worried about the health of musicians and the long-term effects of the music industry. Yeah, 85%. Um, I would like to know what the other 15% are thinking. Boy, they must be really, really <laughs> must be down. Yeah. Uh, and, and they also say half of us think that our favorite live music venue will shut down forever because yeah, of the pandemic. Just, just about to say that there are so many venues across the country that have closed or are on life support. Now, there are some where, fortunately, the owner of the club also owns the building, so they're able to survive because they don't have a landlord over their head, and they can make their own decisions. But there's so many other places that just rent space. And with no money coming in whatsoever, uh, you know, how long can they hang on, especially in areas like uh, Toronto where there's so much pressure on these once, you know, down-and-out cool areas where artists used to hang out uh, are being gentrified. Uh, these these properties are becoming more and more valuable to to developers and i can think of three or four right off the top of my head that have closed because the holders of the owners of the building have sold out to to a developer to build a new condo or office tower Mm -hmm. because they they don't know what their future is and they have to survive that's that's very very true now you know we do have the horseshoe and lee's palace and el macombo in toronto i mean that's that's your 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 you know trifecta right there. That's your triumvirate. Uh, if if any one of those were to go down, that would be. Uh, I don't even want to speculate it, but it, they seem to be able to hang on. On a national level, Alan, what's the impact on the music industry, and then by extension, really the uh, the supply of ambitious artists? Well, uh, we can look at a bunch of different polls from around the world. In the U.K., for example, a substantial number of musicians, it's over 50%, say that uh, they're done. They're not going to go back into the industry at all because it is just too difficult and it's fraught with so many unknowns like like this one. If we look in the United States, there's a a huge uptick in the number of artists that have been receiving um, help or at least say that they need to have help when it comes to mental health. Uh, a similar number is, is, is asking for help in, the, in, in Canada through an organization called Unison. Uh, it is, it's not good. Um, these are creators. These are people who perform and create art as a living. It's, 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 these are people that we need. But in order for them to get the word out on what they do, they need to be seen. They need to be heard in a public setting. And there are no public settings right now. Yeah, what are you expecting will happen, say, in the next 24 months? What, what's the best and worst case scenario? Maybe the most likely scenario. Well, I think this year is going to be a transition year. 
there were are still some people that are optimistic that we'll be able to see some shows this summer. Um, there's still a bunch of tours on the schedule for July, August, September. Uh, Justin Trudeau says that we'll all be inoculated by September the 1st, yeah, whatever. Uh, but I, I think it's a little bit premature to think that we're going to get back to any kind of normalcy or any kind of situation where the uh, industry, the, the, the touring industry, can set up a situation where they can get enough people in so things would be profitable. So I, I think there's a, I think there's a, there's a real possibility that we are looking at 2022. So another 14, 15 months before we can say, okay, we've got enough people vaccinated, we can start to get back to normal. We have uh, some protocols that are in place that won't interfere too much on the presentation of live music in a large crowd. But uh, I, you know, Glastonbury's been canceled for this year. Uh, Ultra Music Festival has been canceled this year. South by Southwest is. Uh, also gone virtual this year. Um, here's an example. You know, Ticketmaster has gotten into the business of selling tickets for virtual concerts. So when Ticketmaster makes that move, when we're supposed to be on the cusp of going back to normal, you can see that they don't have much faith in things going back to normal this year. Yeah. Uh, we, you and I both remember the days when we used to give away tickets on the air to concerts. Yeah. That was what drove a lot of our concerts or at least a lot of our contests were concert tickets. Can't wait for that to return. Oh, yeah, I, I know. You know what? Just when you mentioned that, I'd forgotten. I'd forgotten that we did that. That's how long it's been. <laughs> oh, my. That speaks volumes. Yeah, I remember my very first uh, gigs in radio were uh, rock radio and... And yeah, that's what we did. We gave away tickets, and it was uh, it was great to see the, uh, the people come to the switchboard to reception to be picking up the uh, the tickets. They'd be so excited to go to the concerts. Um, looking at one of the other um, aspects of what you tweeted out at Alan Cross, by the way, is Alan's Twitter feed at Alan Cross A L A N C R O S S. Nearly all Canadians enjoy music, and millions plan to return to live music events when they can. Well. Now we have to be concerned about whether the artists are going to be there. Well, yes. Now, the younger artists will probably be much more gung-ho about going out on the road because that's the only way that they're making money. They're not selling records. They're not streaming music in huge amounts. So the, the bulk of their revenue is coming from playing live. Uh, so they're going to be forced to go out on the road before anybody else. Older artists who are alleged, well, apparently more at risk of getting COVID-19, they're going to be really reticent about going out. I mean, a lot of them uh, have enough money to weather this. Uh, some of them have sold their publishing um, catalogs to big, uh, for, for big dollars to some, some uh, number of companies. So they've got a huge financial cushion where they don't have to work for another day in their life. And, uh, you know, being older and in ill health, I mean, with, with the reason we lose so many rockers in their 70s is because they lived a really, really, really hard life yeah. doing things that you weren't really supposed to do to your body. So they're not in you know, the greatest of shape health-wise. And even so, you're in your 70s or in some cases in your 80s. Are you going to want to go out on the road? No. Uh, no. I just actually saw a David uh, Crosby piece on that. And uh, he was still going out on the road, but you could see... And he did say in that piece that he'd lived a pretty hard life. And he could see the toll it was taking on him, but he wanted to do it. But I, w I would imagine you're absolutely correct. So many of these stars are, you know, of yesterday are going to say, yeah, that's it. Yesterday, not going back. Well, but, I, I, spoke to, I actually spoke to David Crosby. He's got 
all kinds of stints in his heart. He he's already has somebody else's liver. Um, he's not making any money from record sales. He's in tremendous debt, and he recently sold his publishing catalog just to make ends meet. Wow. Wow. Well, Mr. Cross, it's always great talking to you, and uh, I, I, for one, I can't wait. Alan, I am going to go to concerts I probably never would have gone to, simply so that, you know, assuming they're going to be there. If they are, I'm going. I'm going to ball games. I'm going to theaters. I'm going to movies. I want to get out again. Yeah, you don't know what you got till it's gone, right? That's right. The Canadian Constitution Foundation intervening in the successful legal challenge against the Ontario lockdown, forcing the Ford government to make amendments. There's also a petition, as I understand it, concerning the federal government quarantine at hotels for up to three days. Um, that's the regulation for arriving international travelers as they wait for PCR tests. Christine Van Geen is the Director of Litigation for the Canadian Constitution Foundation, and she joins us. Christine, thank you very much for the time. Um, what was it about the Ford government lockdown that most disturbed you and the Canadian Constitution Foundation? So I'll tell you about the case where that was that had this kind of disturbing um, situation. There's a gym in Kitchener-Waterloo that is uh, open for anybody, uh, but it specializes in physical fitness for people with disabilities, whether it's a physical disability or a cognitive or developmental disability. This is a gym that has special equipment and um, specialized trainers who help these uh, individuals train safely and with supervision. And because of the lockdown, this gym was ordered to be closed. And, you know, we have a situation where these are individuals who use physical fitness as a way of managing their disability. And they're told, you cannot do it. You, you need to stay at home and at the expense of your physical or developmental or, or mental health. And um, meanwhile, the Toronto Maple Leafs are allowed to work out in their gym, their elite gym. They have special exemptions, but people with special needs are prohibited. So the gym challenged the lockdown rule, and we got some great news uh, last week, or I guess a week and a bit ago now, that the government was changing the rules um, because of this litigation, they amended it so the individuals with um, with medical notes from the physician who use physical fitness as part of their disability management can use the gym. But, you know, a lot of people are still left out in the cold. They're still locked out of the gym and, unless they have this, this note. So the, the challenge is still proceeding, but it was a big victory for some of the clients of this gym who really, really need it. Yeah. Were there parallels or similar situations in other provinces? This is the most success I've seen in a lockdown challenge so far, and I've been involved in a number of them. There have been challenges brought by churches. Uh, for example, I was involved in a church challenge by uh, a church in Toronto that wanted to open for Christmas at a reduced capacity in their enormous facility just to have 30% um, capacity um, when they can actually hold over a 1,000 people in their building. Um, we did not get the injunction in that case, but the, the challenge is proceeding. But this was the first time we've really seen the provincial government in Ontario cave. The, the government in Manitoba did cave in a similar way um, when they locked down churches at Christmas. They had also prohibited uh, drive-in church services for Christmas. Uh, which makes no sense. I mean, you're you're in your car, you tune your radio to the station that the pastor yeah, or minister exactly. is broadcasting at, and you have your windows shut. So um, 
the government ended up changing the regulations in Manitoba um, in a similar way. So it was uh, a legal victory that was achieved sort of through political change. Um, It didn't end up getting a a ruling like in this case, but um, it shows that really to defend your rights, you, you sometimes need to go to court. To, to get the result you want. Without this litigation, the government was not going to bring this change. Christine, do you find or do you have concern that it's becoming easier for governments at all levels to intrude on personal freedoms, even those guaranteed by the Charter and the Constitution? Uh, absolutely. I mean, we're seeing the biggest intrusion into civil liberties since, I guess, the War Measures Act. It's enormous. There are all kinds of intrusions. Um, into our most fundamental rights. The stay-at-home order itself has flipped the basic notions of, of liberty on their head. Instead of being free to do anything we'd like, and, unless it's listed as illegal, we're, now everything is illegal unless it's listed as approved in the stay-at-home order. And that, that's not how free people in a democratic society live. So um, we've pushed back on a number of these measures. And, and I'll say that I take COVID seriously. I abide by public health regulations. But I think in some situations, some of these orders are just going too far. Um, you know, the, the quarantine hotels is another example of that. Well, talk to us about that, please. Yeah, so the, the government announced two weeks ago now, that the, the Trudeau government announced that they'd be putting incoming travelers into quarantine hotels for up to three days at a cost of two thousand um, dollars per traveler, and um, we have a lot of concerns about this. I've been contacted by now over two thousand people who are traveling for various reasons. And look, I understand there's not a lot of sympathy for people who are off on beach vacations because that's where we'd all like to be right now, but. We need to think about the, the reasons many, many people are traveling. For example, I've been contacted by people who have traveled to get specialized medical care for themselves or their children, medical care that's not available in Canada because it's either too specialized, we don't have it, or because their, their treatment has been delayed in Canada by such a significant amount. Are, are the quarantine hotels going to force people recovering from chemotherapy into a $2,000 facility that can't meet their medical needs? Uh, I, we don't have an answer to that because the government hasn't has announced a policy, but they haven't given us any information about the exemptions. I was contacted by a woman who really sadly suffered a miscarriage, and her husband, who lives in the United States, wants wanted to fly to Canada to to be with her. And because of the quarantine hotels, he's now unsure if he's going to be able to be with her. I mean, I think that he has since now the the hotels are going to come into place on the 22nd. He has been able to to get here. But I mean, these are the situations that we we need to think about when when we say we're going to put everyone in in a two thousand dollar hotel. It's it's punishing people who are, are vulnerable. So if somebody finds themselves in a situation such as that, whether it's the three-day quarantine, whether it's another issue or another situation where they feel that they have no ability to fight back against a public order, but politicians find it easier to uh, challenge or intrude on or violate uh, the guarantees, freedom guarantees, by the Charter and the Constitution. I mean, we can all go to court. We all have the right to hire a lawyer and go to court, but that's awfully expensive, and a lot of people don't have the money to do that or the time. So what would the what's the advice? Get in touch with the, the uh, Canadian Constitution Foundation. What are you suggesting people do? 
So what we have done is we've written to the government to ask for exemptions for people who are traveling for medical reasons, for people traveling for compassionate reasons, or for family reunification. I think that those are probably un- would to to require those people to go to a two thousand dollar quarantine hotel would be a violation of their their charter protected rights in a, in an unjustified way. So if you find yourself in that situation. Um, please contact my organization. We're looking for potential applicants to challenge the law, which could then, you know, lead to that law being struck down as unconstitutional would benefit everybody who's in this situation. Um, So please contact my organization. We're looking for people who have experienced, you know, a concrete um, and and sharp harm, right? So for example, the the cases I just, just described, people who who need medical accommodation, people who are traveling for compassionate reasons. Um, And, and right now though, we're just still waiting for the government to announce the details. And, And it's frankly irresponsible that they announced a broad sweeping policy that implicates our most fundamental rights. And they announced it two weeks ago and we're still waiting for those details. It's, it's, just egregious that the government has done this and, and and is leaving these people who are vulnerable waiting for information. Right. So how do people best get in touch with you? Visit our website. It's the ccf.ca and you can subscribe to our mailing list. We also have a petition up where you can sign your name and also tell your story to um, apply to be a potential applicant to do this charter challenge that we're looking right. into. So it's the ccf.ca as in Canadian Constitution Foundation. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.